Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Literary Studies, a channel on the New Books Podcast Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and today we have as our guest, Anna Vaprinska. Hi, Britt. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. And today we're going to be talking to Anna about um, her recently published book, Empathy and Contemporary Poetry After Crisis. Um, it's, a, it's a great read and I think a really um, prescient one. And before we do that, I'm just going to say a few words about our guest. So Anna is a, is a current SSHRC postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto. Her book, the book we're discussing today, Empathy and Contemporary Poetry After Crisis, was published by Malgrave Palgrave Macmillan in 2020 and was just shortlisted for the MSA First Book Award. Anna has articles published in Contemporary Literature and the Bristol Journal of English Studies and has also published the full-length poetry collection, Sew with Butterflies, and the poetry chapbook, Spirit Clenched. She holds an SSHRC-funded PhD in English from York University, where she won the dissertation prize, and a master's in English from the University of Oxford, and has taught courses at York University, Seneca College, and the postdoctoral school, and the poetry school. Oh my gosh, so many, so many slips of the tongue. Um, Words are so hard. (laughs) Just lots of P's. So, um, welcome to the show, Anna. It's super exciting to have you here, and I'm really I'm really looking forward to discussing your book with you. And before we get into the book itself, um, can you give us a little bit more of your intellectual or academic background and how that related to the origins and the product of this book? Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for the introduction, Britt. Um, And I guess the way uh, there are multiple pathways into how this book came to be. Um, My academic background is um, all of my degrees were in English literature. 
time I did my undergrad at York University, and that's actually uh, where I first encountered Paul Celan, the poet Paul Celan, whom I know you also, um, is a poet who also speaks to you, Britt. Um, and yeah. I discovered Paul Celan in a course um, run by Bruce Pau called Visionary Literature. And I think, so Paul Celan appears in the book, but Paul Celan was also the focus of my master's thesis. And his poetry, um, his poetry really spoke to me and it spoke to me especially because of the way in which I first read him. So I'll say a little bit more about that. So when I was in Bruce Powell's class, uh, we were reading, and I think Psalm might've been the poem uh, that we're reading, which is the poem that appears in the book. And the way that um, Bruce had us read that poem uh, was really slowly, like with emphasis to every single word. Um, and so one person, he'd have one person read and then he'd say, okay, can someone else read that? But slower. And this happened like mm. multiple times until almost you were pausing almost after every word. And Edmund Jabez has, uh, the poet Edmund Jabez has a quote about this. He says, silence, as all writers know, allows the word to be heard. Um, and it was a moment in which, um, even though I'd loved poetry since I was a child, um, and writing poetry pretty much coincided with me learning English and learning to speak, um, and so and learning to write, and so uh, it feels pretty ingrained in who I am. But I think that moment of reading Salan that slowly and paying attention, and you know, he's a poet where uh, each word um, is so pressurized. It's uh, each word has a carries so much meaning, whether it's historical, cultural, political, etc. Um, and so, Paul Celan was part of my entryway into poetry after crisis and poetry after the Holocaust, which is one of the crises I consider in the book. The other way I came to the way I came to empathy was actually also in an uh, it, it was in a PhD course this time, so I was at York, um, and it was Leslie Higgins's city, city text class. And I wrote my final essay for that class. Uh, it was a modernist, modernist essay on Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway and Duna Barnes's Nightwood. And in that essay, I considered the doctors in those texts. Um, and I'm sure you recall, but um, so the doctor in uh, Mrs. Dalloway is somebody who is so unempathetic, so removed um, from trying to understand the effective uh, landscape of um, the characters, the other characters' worlds. Um, and then versus the doctor in Nightwood, who's somebody, he's somebody who's so overly empathetic, who just like takes on other people's pain um, so easily and effortlessly, but almost to a point of um, appropriating it. And I'm sure we'll talk about how empathy can appropriate later in uh, this chat um, and I and in the essay I talked about how neither neither kind of empathy whether this very understated empathy or this overly abundant empathy um, could lead to any kind of healing um, and that's kind of where uh, my thinking about empathy began um, and then yeah I guess putting together those various interests um, with uh, Salan, uh, with crisis poetry, with empathy is kind of how the book came to be. And of course, um, I guess like in terms of the Holocaust, my own family history, um, my family is Jewish, I'm Jewish, and there's a long line of uh, history of people and even stories that 
we don't know the conclusions to. Um, we can just assume of people who were in the Holocaust and suffered, um, and so um, in various ways. So uh, I guess those different pathways are what brought me to this book. Thank you for that. Um, I think you have, you've kind of touched on a lot of what I think is important about this book in that I think empathy is a big problem or a, a, a problematic that a lot of literary studies is looking at today. And I think you you add a lot to the conversation and and crisis is, is such a big word. Um, and I think that's where I want to begin. Um, probably with those two words, crisis and empathy, um, two words that show up in the title of your book. And I want to move backwards. I don't want to... So we'll start with crisis and then go to empathy. Um, so can you define how you're seeing the word crisis and how it's deployed in the text? Um, you bring in trauma theory. So, for example, Shoshana Fellman and Kathy Carruth as kind of these big names that help us to define traumatic experience or trauma theory within literature. And you that's where you start the conversation of crisis. And I'm just wondering if you can provide a, a little definition of what you think crisis is and then talk about why you chose the three crises that you did, which you mentioned the Holocaust. Um, and then the other two are 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. Okay, thank you so much for that question. Um, so I think of crisis, and I'll try to answer it as best I can. Um, and it makes me think about whether I did define crisis in the book. Um, it's all these things you think about after. But um, I think of crisis as a crux, um, as a point, uh, a pressurized point, as uh, something something happens. And the way the way I conceived it in the book was I looked at uh, public cultural crises. Um, but a crisis could also be personal, of course. Um, and uh, the, the reasons for choosing the public crises was because of the um, vast array of poetry available to those. So that was part of that reason. Um, but that's not to say that the personal crisis, um, the kinds of work that I do with the poetry in this book, uh, doesn't apply to the personal. I think it does. Um, and so, I mean, these are thoughts for a potential other book. But um, in terms of why I chose these three crises, um, I guess these three pressurized points, um, uh, trauma, like of things, of things, um, of things going wrong in a way, of uh, potential trauma for the people involved. Uh, the reason I chose these three was because of the incomparable, and I talk about this in the book as well, of the incomparable nature of crises events themselves. Um, so how do you choose three uh, to talk about? Um, it's almost impossible to choose because each one is so incomparable. Each one, um, even though you could say you could compare uh, one genocide to another, each one holds its own stories, um, its own individualized accounts, its own poetries. Um, and so part of the reason they're so different, these crises, is because I wanted them to be different. I wanted to compare three things um, that you wouldn't think to really compare something like the Holocaust, something like 9-11, um, and something like Hurricane Katrina. 
And part of the reason of choosing those specific three as well um, was because uh, the object of my study was empathy. And I wanted to understand how does empathy work in different contexts? When you place it in different contexts under different pressure, um, how does it look? Um, how does it articulate itself? And so that's why I chose a genocide, a terrorist attack, and then a natural disaster, um, but one that's, of course, amplified by racial um, and uh, class politics. So uh, I hope that answers it. That's kind of where where those three came from. And I talk a bit about in the introduction and in the conclusion about um the discomfort of having three Western crises um, and the problems of translation, um, the opportunities of translation. Um, and so, yeah, in a way, they're arbitrary choices in the same way that crises um, are incomparable and these, these crises are incomparable, but in another way, they're chosen to to show the different ways that empathy works after three very different events. Yeah, I think something you do in this book is give us a some kind of a scaffolding for thinking about other crises um, and the incomparability of crisis. Um, it reminds me, um, Jacques Derrida's book, The Work of Mourning, which is a collection of his elegies or eulogies given for his friends who passed away as he lived on and on and longer than the rest. In French, the original title is Chaque fois unique, la fin du monde. Each time unique, the end of the world. And I think that's a way to describe crisis. It's every time it happens, it's unique. So in some way, a collection of three, any three would, would have worked. And I think what you can do with your book is kind of think about other crises um, and what what kinds of poetry come after them. Um, so now we can move to the the important word in your text, which is empathy. Um, this is a hard word. I, I think it has such an interesting history and um, a common misconceptions and historical misconceptions. Um, can you draw out what you are working? what your working definition of empathy is, and maybe talk a little bit about the history of the word. It has an interesting um, translational history. And I think maybe compare it to other forms of um, recognition of the other, or perhaps identification, that's a word you bring up, um, or even sympathy, which is another concept very closely tied to empathy, but, but different. Okay, um, I will try to do that. There are a lot of questions there. Um, so, of course, empathy um, is a word I struggled with throughout this book. Um, and I think, like, we began this interview, and I think I said words are so hard, and I think they are um, uh, because of uh, what you say. Like, there's this, there's a history that they carry, there are connotations they carry, um, much uh, that are much bigger than uh, looking up empathy in the dictionary. Um, so I guess I'll begin a bit with that history and then I'll move into the definition. So empathy is a word that came out of German aesthetics. Um, so it's interesting to think about the location, the field from which empathy came. Um, and it didn't come through psychology or sociology, which are fields in which we often see empathy come up now. 
Um, and so, um, or history. So it's interesting that it came out of an aesthetics uh, field and it was translated, it was only translated into English in 1909 from the German word Einfelung. And so thinking about that, it's only about a century old, this word. Um, and so that's very interesting to think about. And in the introduction of the book, I also talk about how uh, empathy came to be in English at, in the same around the same time that the word trauma, trauma also came to be. Um, and then it's just interesting um, tied, like conceptual and historical um, uh, arising of these two words. Um, and empathy, uh, the way empathy has been defined and the way the definition with which I work through in the book um, is thinking of it as an imaginative, as both an imaginative, so a cognitive and effective, uh, effective projection of the self into another. Um, and when we talk about empathy colloquially, we often uh, will reference the metaphor, uh, put yourself into somebody else's shoes. Um, and actually, I'll just uh, veer off to just uh, I guess share a really interesting anecdote. Uh, when I was uh, in, I think it was June 2017, uh, there was a conference run by the European Society for Literature, Arts and Science. And the title of the conference, the theme of the conference was Empathies. So empathy in the plural. And uh, one of the things that this conference did, and uh, this, I was writing the conclusion when I went to this conference, but it was uh there was so much richness that came out of it, um, and there were so many fields represented in it, um, and it made me uh, really, uh, really think about like everything I had written um, in a new light. And so uh, that conference was really great. But why I brought it up is because there were uh, there was a pair of shoes. At, so at the front of the main room of the conference, there was a pair of shoes that were on display um, to speak to this metaphor of. Uh, to walk into someone else's shoes. And one of the things that the conference organizer said was at any point during this conference, you're free to take off your shoes and exchange them for whichever ones are on this podium at the moment. Uh, so it's this idea of um, physically, uh, I guess, physically iterating that metaphor of to walk in somebody else's shoes. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting touch. Um, and it also reminds me of, you know, uh, I haven't looked into this in a while, but there are em there's an empathy museum. Um, and one of the things they do is uh, have you try on different people's shoes, which is really interesting. So I just, I, I don't know, it's just interesting for me to consider how uh, metaphor and how language can be taken into this very, into the physicality, um, into its like physical being. And so, uh, and so this idea of walking in somebody else's shoes, of projecting yourself into another, um, is the way um, I see empathy. I also see it as a kind of openness, um, as a way of uh, opening to another person and an openness that runs both ways between self and other. Uh, Frank Bedard, the poet Frank Bedard, he calls empathy, um, and this was actually the title of the book in its first iteration, um, Back when it was a dissertation, uh, the beginning of the title was The Skin of Another. Um, and uh, Frank Bedard says, em sees empathy as the imagination to enter the skin of another. 
And so this idea of entry, of openness, of projection um, is all part of this idea of empathy. Um, that said, um, I develop, uh, so in the book, I develop the concept of empathetic dissonance. And I'm not, I'm going to stop there because I'm sure you'll ask me about it. Um, but uh, it's a concept that basically questions empathy um, and doesn't just take for granted, um, which I think a lot of us do. Like if you haven't studied empathy um, or I guess if you haven't thought about the uh, very like power relations in that empathy constitutes right between empathizer and object of empathy um, you'll often think of empathy as a very ethical relation uh, which it of course can be um, but it isn't always and that's what empathetic dissonance addresses thank you um that your anecdote about the conference is so interesting um and i think one of the things you bring up in the in the text is that there's there's a danger in empathy of, of losing the self too much. Um, and the constant recognition that there's a difference between self and other. And while you mm-hmm. were mentioning that anecdote, I was thinking of, you know, what if you took off your shoes and put them up on the platform and then someone took your shoes and then you just wouldn't have shoes. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a, a, there's a, a fear involved in empathy or a, a risk taking. And I think, something that many of these poems do is jump headfirst into that risk um, and force us to confront both the, the separation between ourselves and others and the possibility that, you know, we can um, get all the way to one another. Yes, of course. And uh, just to, to go off what you said, also this idea that what if the shoes you take don't fit? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's in empathy too, this idea. Um, and, I could talk a bit about empathetic dissonance if you would like me to. Yeah, I think that would be that would be great before we get deeper into the chapters. Yeah, so I was. Uh, I guess this is the concept I saw happening in these works. Uh, so empathetic dissonance. If empathy is this process of um, projecting self into other, then empathetic dissonance um, is a process that both invites empathy and refuses it. Um, So it's a process that both commends it and condemns it because it recognizes that empathy uh, is both ethical, both something that's an ethical relation toward another, and it's something that can be unethical and something that can be a violence. Um, And so there's a pull and toward and a push away from empathy. Um, And we can think of it almost as uh, empathy is both bridge, but empathy is also bruise. Um, so um, I guess in metaphorical terms, that's the way I kind of think about it. Um, and this empathetic dissonance is what I see these poems displaying, both wanting empathy, um, wanting understanding from another, um, wanting that entry into the self, but also pushing it away, realizing that, like you said, that gulf of empathy and Sarah Ahmed uh, coins that um, term gulf of empathy. Um, so this distance between the self and other and these various problematics um, of empathy that we can talk about further as well. So I think we'll we'll be able to go into the chapters and I think you'll be able to open up more empathetic dissonance within them. Um, so your three chapters, or I guess the three categories that you're looking at, um, there's a tripartite um, structure, which in each one 
has a tripartite structure based on the crises. So the first one, I think, was the most obvious, and it's it's the unsaid. And I think something that we get from trauma theory and from uh, many thinkers following the Holocaust is that there's an inability to speak to the violence of that crisis. And I think in general, lots of crises, um, maybe that's one of the constitutive definitions of crisis, that there's an unspeakability or a failure of language. Um, So can you talk about unsaid or unspeakable or um, that which is beyond language and perhaps give us a a way to think about how poetry can put the unsaid in the said. Um, You write, or you quote poet Kelly Cherry, um, who says that, I believe in the power of language to show, to move, to solve, to heal, to build. I believe that nothing is beyond language, or rather that the nothing, capital N, that is beyond language is containable with art. I believe that that is what art is for, to contain the nothing that is beyond language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, later she actually says that I believe this and I'm and am without words. Um, so that's quite interesting. Okay, I was just taking notes as you were writing. Uh, sorry, as you were speaking. So uh, it's an interesting question. And you're right that it's the most obvious because, and I think that's part of the reason it comes first, um, because it's something that so many uh poetic, but also non-poetic literary responses, uh, all sorts of literary responses after crises uh, speak to. Um, This inability uh, to speak after a crisis or to find the words with which to speak. Um, And at the same time, there's so much written after a crisis. And writing is often something that people turn to or artistic expression after a crisis. And just to illustrate that, it reminded me of uh, something I read in actually one of the anthologies after 9-11. Uh, there was, a, there was a, uh, the fire department issued a statement after 9-11, and they said, thank you for the food and the blankets, uh, but please, no more poetry. Um, and it was a response to poetry that had been strewn around um, all of New York City. Um, so this idea that even though uh, we grapple with how do we how do we describe uh, how do we speak? Uh, there's a poet I was just listening to, Jacob Rosenberg, and he says, "How do you find the language to describe it? Uh, what alphabet do you employ?" And of course, the land struggles with that and invents words and uh, compounds words and breaks down the language and remakes the language. Um, and so many other poets struggle with that. But then at the same time, uh, there's this proliferation of writing um, that happens after a crisis. So it's an interesting um, tension um, that happens. And I was also thinking about, of course, Adorno when you were talking. Um, and Adorno said to write poetry after Auschwitz is, our, is barbaric. And I talk about a bit in the book about how... <sighs> So many people interpret that to mean you can't write after Auschwitz um, or you can't write after these uh, big traumas, these big crises, um, because what happens to language? How do you use the same language um, that was used 
in the perpetuation of these um, traumas to describe it. Um, and what I think Adorno meant um, and what I see in Salan's work and others um, is that you can write after a crisis. It's just that the the work is different. The work carries, and Salan says it. Uh, I think it was speech went through, or words or language went through the thousand darknesses of death, bringing speech. Um, and so this idea that you carry that history, that trauma, um, you write through an awareness of those. So it's not that you can't write after. It's just that the poetry or the whatever literary uh, response you have isn't the same um, because it's been affected um, by this. Um, and I'm also reminded of Charlotte Delbeau and her um, incredible memoir, Auschwitz and After. Um, and what she keeps saying in that memoir is that we don't speak in the same language. Like once you've been like the language of the camps is not the same language after the camps. So when you or me say we're hungry or we're starving or we're thirsty, um, that's not what those words meant in the camps, right? So um, there's, there's a big gap, even though we have the same words, there's a big gap in what these words actually mean. Um, and in one poem, she says, um, you and she often used the uses this um apostrophe you um to invite us in but also kind of to keep us out and that's the sympathetic dissonance um so she says you want to know uh, you you ask questions you want to know and i'm probably misquoting um but then she says we we don't know how to answer not with the words you use um and so it goes to this idea of um there being really a gap in the meaning of words um, between when when you're in these very I guess a limit events like the Holocaust like 9/11 like Hurricane Katrina um, where the language um, can take on very different meanings than it does in the everyday um, and it goes back to I guess this this word crisis again. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i think what you just bring up with um you talked about the apostrophe you talk about um apostrophe as a figure that that is central to um a lot of the poetry that comes out of crises um and apostrophe for um 
for listeners who might not know, it's it's like the the O West Wind. Um, it's you are giving a you're personifying or bringing into being the reader or the listener who you're speaking to, and I think it's related to the deictic, which is a a type of it's a it's a I'm like having to give vocabulary lessons. This is so hard. Um, but a deictic is a word like we or you or I or here and there. And I think you carry the deictic conversation throughout the text, but they they shift based on who's speaking. Um, there's no set definition for a deictic. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you see the deictic or the apostrophe in relation to the unspeakability or the unanswerability of speech in relation to crisis because there's a difference there's a huge difference as as we know between experiencing the holocaust or the 9 or 911 or hurricane katrina and reading about it and i'm wondering if you can say a few words about empathy and the deictic and that relationship to language Mm-hmm. Um, I think the deactic, um, it's such an interesting concept because it's almost secret in a way, unless you know what the referent is, um, right? It's a, uh, uh, there are words that change in context, right? Um, and when you say, so that example I gave of the Holocaust poets is, who says, um, how do you describe it? What is the it, right? And it's almost you're invited into a secret, secret when to, in order to like try and decipher what is it um, in the context of what uh, the poet is writing. And so the deactic, um, in terms of empathy, it's almost an invitation in, um, but it's also a push away because if you don't know what uh, it refers to, um, you're pushed away. Um, and then Actually, in uh, so I'll give another example of one of the poems I look at in the book. I look at um, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, um, and specifically the Hurricane Katrina poem in that text. Um, and don't have that quote in front of me, but one of the things um, the language becomes very disjointed there, um, and there's this one that keeps being referenced one, um, uh, and so you don't know exactly who that one is, and you feel you're almost uh, you're. It's, it's empathetic in the sense of you're invited into this kind of chaotic world um, of trying to figure out um, how to get your family and yourself out of this uh, very like critical situation um, of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, but you're also, you're not sure of who this one is and is, is one the same one every time one is referenced or does one change every time um, one is spoken about? Um, and so I think there's a, it's almost like the dialectic is like a, like a carrier for empathetic dissonance um, because it has this both invitation um, and this very cautious um, potential rejection if you uh, don't know or don't understand um, or can't figure out what the referent is. Um, I hope that answers that a bit. Yeah, so I'd like to to move on to another deictic, um, which is the next chapter, which is entitled The Unhear. Um, and so here is another deictic. It's if I say here, I, I mean 
you know, Durham, North Carolina in my, in my chair at my desk with everything open in front of me, all that I have crowding my desk. And if, and when I say you're there, Anna's there, that's a different there, but you can say I'm here and that's where you are and I'm there and that's where I am. So it, it functionally, it just keeps changing. Um, and I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit about how hereness and distance relates to empathetic dissonance um, within the poetry that you're analyzing? Okay, that's that's actually a really excellent question. Thank you. Um, um, and I love that you gave the example of your here uh, versus my here. And to each of us, they're here's, uh, but to the other, they're theirs, if that makes sense. So um, thinking about how even language, um, even in language, like we can't fully empathize with each other because your here can't be my here unless I physically like put myself in the here that you are and even that can shift, right? So um I already lost the question. Yeah, so un unhear um and empathetic dissonance. Is that is that what the question was? <laughs> yeah. So um in terms of crises, uh so the second chapter titled The Unhear, um it looks at um I guess, removed witnessing. So a lot of the uh, poetry that I look at there are witnesses that didn't necessarily um, have a firsthand experience of um, a particular crisis, um, but write about it nonetheless. So like, for example, the Polish poet was Loa Zimborska, um, her poet photograph um, from September 11th. Uh, so her here um, is very... She's unhere in the crisis, and I, I think I talk a bit about why I called it unhere as opposed to unthere, um, because it puts the pressure on the here, um, this idea of the here as the position of the person in the crisis. And if you're unhere, if you're not, I guess, there, um, you, you're at a removed position. Um, and I think, uh, oh, this is what I was going to say, that um, nearness and distance are so much a part of empathy. Um, and Rebecca Solnit, um, who's another entry point into this book, and I begin with her words uh, from the book, The Far Away Nearby, right? And in that book, uh, she talks all about empathy um, and how empathy is a process of both trying to get yourself towards another, so trying to uh, reduce the distance between you and another, um, but at the same time not being able to reduce that distance. So you're both trying to be near, but at the same time you're far. Um, going back to that gulf of empathy that uh, Sarah Ahmed describes. I think something that, that is brought up in your text as well as in the idea of a deictic is that here is when you're reading a text you have a here and it's different from the here of the poem especially in poems that are talking about the holocaust or 9-11 or hurricane katrina because those are those are separated from us either geographically or temporally um there's i can't ever go to the here of the camp or the here of um, New Orleans or the here of um, New York during 9-11. Um, but I, I think 
there's a fear that comes in that's it could happen here and i think that's what a lot of the empathy tries to suggest um but what i what i'd like to ask you now is how do you think the the un is functioning to make here unhear and how does that relate to empathetic dissonance within poetry Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I talk a bit about that on as well. And uh, the reason they all begin with ons is because I kind of wanted to to keep that tension um, and to point at that unrest um, and that tension within crisis. And like the, within those two words that you pointed out as like rightly, like these bookended parts of the title, Empathy and Contemporary Poetry After Crisis, but also as these very like important terms in this work um they hold this tension empathy holds attention as we discussed um empathetic dissonance holds attention and crisis holds tension and by keeping that on at the center um it was a way of articulating that tension um that it was about the unsaid and one of the things i talk about in the conclusion is um maybe that kind of tips it over uh it, it tips it over right into that um on and that unrest not just so the in the unsaid i talk about both the unsaid and the said um but by of course privileging the unsaid as the title um of the chapter it may tip that analysis towards that unsaid if that makes sense um so but the un is something that was um, meant to keep the unrest um, and the difficulty of these texts. Thank you. And I one more question on in this chapter. So something you bring up is that this is in the in this chapter, the texts you look at are not not from the crisis, but they represent some kind of a crisis of witnessing, um, which I think is something that you bring up that there's there's a real role to the witness and to someone who hears testimony and then must do something with it. Um, There's that unease of hearing something or reading something so effective about a crisis that it, it's hard to like, you don't know what to do with it. Um, And so you, you, you give it to others to bear almost. Um, And I'm wondering, can you say something about perhaps the, the responsibility, the gesture of responsibility within the hearness, within the the practice of witnessing or listening to another, um, and I think that that goes to talk to the the distance. Is there a responsibility, an ethical imperative in that distance and within the fact of crisis? Yes, uh, thank you so much for that question. Um, and I think it's an important one. Um, and yes, I do think there's a responsibility when writing about crises, especially, and that responsibility just becomes, um, I guess, like bar- just larger when when that crisis isn't, I guess, quote unquote, yours. And of course, that's another um, the dialectic term, the one that would need. Um, I like figuring out, but um, yes, I think that there is a responsibility when writing about crisis to not do something destructive, um, to not overstep um, the way empathy can step into another's shoes. It can also overstep 
um, its boundaries, overstep another. Um, it can be, and uh, theorists have, theorists like Sadia V. Hartman and Jonathan Boyeran have referred to empathy as a kind of symbolic violence, um, as the violence of identification, um, because Sometimes when you step into another, imagine yourself into another, it can become all about you. Um, and then you can shift that emotional focus from that object of empathy uh, to yourself. Um, and so um, it becomes, empathy can become this very appropriative act. Um, and so I think there is a responsibility when witnessing, whether in writing or otherwise, um, and responding to a crisis, again, especially one that uh, you are a secondary witness to, um, to not do harm. Um, and I think it's very hard, like on a practical level, I think it's very hard to, um, to do that. Um, and I've seen it, like, and I talk about in the book, about how I've seen it done in like a way that has left me at least as a reader feeling so uncomfortable. Um, and I'm talking here about uh, specifically Susan Berkland, Susan Berkland's Jesus poem. Um, one of the things she says in that poem, so the poem is basically about, for those of you who haven't read it, um, she imagines it's a response to 9-11. She imagines herself or her, uh, let's say, speaker, the poem speaker, into the towers on the day of 9-11. And she says, if I had been in one of those towers, and she uses it um, to affirm her uh, Christian faith. Um, but one of the things she says that uh, at least rubbed me really the wrong way in the poem is she says, I don't know what I would be feeling, um, but I... Uh, let me try and remember it. Falls out of your head when you want it. Oh, she said, but I wouldn't be angry. She says, I don't know what I would be feeling, but I'm sure I wouldn't be angry. And I thought that kind of very um, certain kind of empathy that didn't leave room for anger, which is a very, like, uh, I guess, a very appropriate response to uh, to a victim of 9-11 um, is something that she kind of does away with um, and so I think in a way like that poem oversteps the boundaries um, and it does exactly what um, Byron and Hartman are talking about when they uh, called empathy a kind of symbolic violence. Um, and Leslie Jameson in her book, um, Empathy Exams, she also talks about, um, and she coins a word called empathy. Um, so this idea that she uses it when she talks about um uh, her brother and she says I took on his suffering so much um, that it became about me so empathy um, instead of empathy and I'm not sure if that answers it but um, I think uh, those are the kind of things I'm thinking about when it comes to responsibility and the ways in which um, that responsibility can um, go astray I suppose um, and of course, there's there's so many other examples I can give from that chapter, especially um, with Reznikov, um, who uh, he like chisels poetry out of uh, the courtroom courtroom um, transcripts of the Nuremberg and Eichmann trials, um, and so that's really interesting because it's the words aren't his, but all the editorial choices are his, um, and he chooses to remove names, all the names. He chooses to uh, switch from first to third person. Um, he 
removes all the literary figures of speech because uh, his concern, like the courtroom's concern, is a focus on facts over emotions. Um, yeah, and uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Hogg and Rebecca Ross in their Hurricane Katrina interview poems and photographs um, also do a similar kind do similar kind of work where they uh, interview uh, survivors of Katrina and they uh, and photograph them uh, and the words are all uh, the survivors' words, but the way they're arranged on the page, um, what's chosen to be included in interviews that were like many pages long, but poems that turn out to be two or three pages long. Um, it's all editorial choice. Um, and so as, as that secondary witness, you do have a responsibility to um, those for whom you're speaking, right? Not to ventriloquize them, um, but yeah, to do so, uh, to do so um, with an empathy that doesn't overstep, or with a kind of compassion. Um, if we're going to use a different word, if empathy isn't exactly right, which is something I struggle with as well. Yeah, I was I was reminded of um, Tadeusz Rojevics. Um, he's a poet writing after World War II, and he says that after World War II um, and the the terrors and the the violences of it, we can we must create poetry that is made not of verses, but of facts. And he, in a lot of his poems, he uses newspaper clippings. Um, and I, I think the idea of ventriloquization and, and empathy, I, what, you've bring, what you bring out and the idea of witnessing is that the poet must not ventriloquize for the, the, the victim, rather they should be ventriloquized by them to let their voices speak through um, in some way. And I think that's a really powerful idea to let the survivors speak or let the victims speak because they were not able to in some way. Yes. Um, so you bring up a poem called, what was it? Jesus. What was the poem title? A Jesus poem. Um, but Jesus before you, poem. I just wanted to say something oh, to yeah, what you ahead. said. <laughs> it's okay. Um, it just reminded me of uh, Brad Beckler who writes after Hurricane Katrina was affected by Katrina um, and how he calls his collection of poetry uh, documentary. Uh, he says it's called when will the sky fall hurricane Katrina, a documentary in poetry. Mm. Um, yeah. And this like very, uh, yeah, like where is poetry on the line between fact and fiction, right? And uh, where where do we fit it in when it's a f about crisis? And what about documentary? And what about imagination? Um, and so all these kind of questions just like bubbling to the surface. But you go ahead, uh, Britt. Well, I, I bring up the the Jesus poem and, and the the poet's relationship to Christianity because I think that's a great way to get into your last chapter, which is called... It's so powerful. It's the un-God. Um, and I, can you explain your concept of the un-God? Um, I think in relation to perhaps the idea, like a deistic formulation of, of God as a, you know, the watchmaker who just sets things in motion and then watches from afar, as opposed to also an atheistic, that th there is no God. Um, so how does the ungod kind of fit into that as opposed to those two figures? Mm -hmm. um, so the way I conceive of this ungod un is kind of, I guess, in two ways. Um, and I talk about this in this chapter is that um, 
So an ungod is, it can be an, a kind of atheism. So the the belief that God doesn't exist. Um, and then, of course, within that belief, there are two beliefs, um, whether God, God never existed or God no longer exists, which is sometimes kind of the response you see after a crisis, like after um after an event uh, like the Holocaust, um, this response that, oh, is there a God if that could happen? Um, but not always, right? And then the second way I conceive it that is that on God can be a theist, it can be part of a theistic belief. So uh, the belief in God, God does exist, but um, the individual refuses this relationship with God or God or believes that God refuses this relationship um, with the individual. Um, so this idea that I guess God uh, either can or cannot, either does or doesn't exist in the on God um, based on it's still through the eyes of that individual. Thank you. That's a great explication of that. Um, it's, it's a very hard thing to think about. Um, and I think, <laughs> Um, I mean, God comes up so often when we think of poetry of crisis. Um, and we, we say it normally in, in our everyday language when we talk about crisis, like, how could God let that happen? How could God mm-hmm. do that? Or is there a God? Or, or, or all those questions of we want something, we want this to have reason. And with senseless violence, um, it almost seems to kill God in, in a Nietzschean formation. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I want to take it to the poems. Um, and I think my favorite part of this is um, where you talk about Psalm and you mentioned that in the beginning. So I'll, I'll let us, I'll let you kind of talk about what you're doing there. Um, but I, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to read the first two stanzas of, of Paul Ceylan's um, poem, Psalm. Um, of course, I would love that. Uh, so this is Paul Ceylan's poem, Psalm. I'll read it in German and then, and then in English. Psalm. Niemand knetet uns wieder aus Erde und Lehm. Niemand bespricht unseren Staub. Niemand. Gelobt seist du, niemand. Dir zu lieb wollen, wir blühen. Dir entgegen. So in English, that would read, no one needs us again out of earth and clay. No one summons our dust. No one. Blessed art thou, no one. In thy sight would we bloom. In thy spite. Um, So I'll turn it over to you, but I I think what you're trying to get out of this is that Ceylon's notion of God as niemand, as no one, and the ungod are, are similar. So can you say a little bit more about what you're trying to do in this reading, as well as a reading of his poem, Tenebre? Yes, of course. Um, and like I said, Selene is kind of the entry point, um, and this poem especially is one of the entry points um, into this work. Um, so I'm glad you brought it up. And what I think Selene is doing, and I mean, there's an endless... Uh, array of possibilities, especially with Salan. Um, but this idea of no one, um, and this capitalized no one, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we say no one, right, it's just part of our everyday language. But when no one becomes 
capitalized, then this then God becomes no one, right? This action of kneading us again out of earth and clay. Um, there is no genesis um, in this in this um, poem, and in, especially in this first stanza. So there's there's no one there. So there's physically nobody there to to uh, bring us back to life. Um, but then there's also that no one, that nobody that's there also becomes a physical presence. Um, this on God, this capitalized no one. Um, and if God is no one, um, then it, it's a, in the very name, um, the absence is what's highlighted, that God isn't there. Um, Nimand, no one. Yeah, and I hope, hope that answers it a bit. Yeah, that this poem is it's such it's such a great one. Um, it's from his his collection Niemann's Rose, which the term um, no one's rose it it shows up in the poem. Um, it's one of my favorites. I I love Ceylon and I I evangelize him incredibly <laughs> to everyone I know um, and to on this podcast everyone reads Ceylon. Um, so so one, <laughs> another question I have relates to Hurricane Katrina. Um, especially because, you know, natural disasters, as we call them, um, even though in the in post-Katrina discourse, it's 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 the idea is that it, the hurricane wasn't the disaster; it was the lack of preparedness for, on the city, and as well as the government not responding immediately enough or correctly. Um, but we still call this an act of God. So, how does that work? Um, with the idea of the ungod, and and especially in relation to the the poetry that you're that you're working with in this section. So there's um, and I quote this, I believe, at the beginning of the ungod chapter. Um, I'm just gonna locate it, but it's this idea that we sometimes will blame God um, and use this excuse of um, it was God's will um, instead of taking responsibility uh, for our own actions. Um, I can't find it, but um, it's that idea that um, God is used as an excuse um, for our actions. Um, And, when and you see God being blamed, um, or God being pedestaled, like one or the other, or anything in between in these poems, um, but this idea that, um, especially in terms of uh, Katrina, uh, right? And you mentioned already, um, there were so many things that led to it, um, and this idea of who who is in the privileged here, um, who is in the privileged space of a city. Um, in in Katrina, when Katrina happens, uh, where were the levees uh, not strong enough um, to hold the floodwaters, right? Um, and then the, all the kind of race and class issues um, that are part of that question um, and part of its answer. And maybe I lost the, tra- the train of thought now, um, but uh, maybe if you repeat your question or if there's something I haven't covered. No, I, I think that does, that, that goes to it, the idea that, um, you know, we we can't call on God after a crisis always, but the idea of calling on God or apostrophizing 
perhaps even a deictic god, not a not a deity, but a deictic. Um, mm-hmm. How does that or that allows us to shift the blame? We don't have to take responsibility for the crisis. We can just say it was natural, and we don't have to respond. Um, but the poetry you work with says otherwise. It it highlights that fact that you know it's not an act of God. This is or it's not solely an act of God. It's an act of un-God, but it's also an act of people. Mm-hmm. And Katie, in Katie Ford's poem, in that chapter, in uh, her poem, Flee, uh, she says, um, and it's like, it's a light, it's light, which is like kind of like an approximation to God in this poem. And she, in that poem, she says, uh, the line, um, I gave you each other, so save each other. Um, and it's like, uh, as if God is turning away and saying like, this it's now God saying it's uh, not us saying God it's your fault or it's an act of God it's God saying this is your fault like you're responsible now act and do something about it mm-hmm. yeah and I yeah and I think empathy in terms of that in terms of action is actually like quite interesting and not always uh, like empathy doesn't always lead to action and it's problematic um, it can be problematic. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a realization that you, you, we have to come to terms with throughout the reading of this text, that all the empathy in the world doesn't mean anything if, if it doesn't inspire anything beyond empathy. Um, yeah, maybe I can do that. If we have time, can I share another anecdote? Yeah, feel free. Was, uh, so uh, Paul Bloom has this wonderful book called Against Empathy. Um, and the title is like very contentious, obviously, but... Um, uh, if you read it, you see that um, it's like the, the subtitle is the case for rational compassion. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because is because in that book he recounts an anecdote um, that, he, that he read from jo- Jonathan Glover, um, and the anecdote is about a woman who lived near to um, in Nazi Germany near to the death camps, and from her window she was able to see atrocities being perpetuated so she could see um, prisoners being killed um, and tortured. And she was so distraught by this that she wrote a letter um, to the camp officials and she said, um, I can't take this. Like, I can't take witnessing this. I'm physically, like, ill watching this. I request that you discontinue this at once or else do it where I don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that letter, it always stuck with me. And I thought it was so powerful because it just goes to show that even though she had empathy, she felt like literally with, like she felt sick watching um, these, uh, the people be- being tortured, but her empathy led to no action. Like she was just as satisfied if the torture and the killings would take place outside of her sight. Yeah, there's there's a limit um, to empathy. And it, at some point, it's just as if we have to say, I can't do this anymore. I can't see this anymore. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I don't want it to happen. Yeah, and that's a good point about like the capacities of uh, witnessing and how that also has its limits. I mean, even and I don't talk about my own empathy too much in this book. Um, but even reading these works, um, there were works I had to like, especially Reznikov's um, Holocaust, like there were works I could only read a few pages of at a time because they were so difficult um, to encounter even as a removed witness. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, there, that's a that Charles Reznikoff's book is is intense. Um, it's I had to read it for class one year, and it's it's a hard one to read because he doesn't he doesn't make any language flowery, or he doesn't. There's no metaphor. It's mm-hmm. it's the direct witnessing, um, and I think. Paul Celan has, a, has a, in another poem, he writes that no one witnesses mm-hmm. for the witness. Um, so there's a question of, you know, what, what happens after I read these poems? And I, I think that what you, you get at is that there's, a, there's an impetus to do something to, to, cre- to make sure that other crises don't happen or to lessen their effects or to, to just be with others. Um, and I think that's, that's a, a great idea. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely think there's a responsibility, um, both like to the writers writing like as secondary witnesses, but also to the readers. Um, There's a section in my conclusion about to the reader and like asking for the reader not to just be like a surveyor of the content of this book, Mm -hmm. um, but to, um, to a certain extent empathize, but to, uh, and I use empathy because almost there's not another word other than potentially compassion. Um, like, what do you do when the term empathy is problematic itself? Um, and they say, like, there's been talk about how compassion, um, which means feeling, so empathy means feeling into, whereas compassion means feeling with. Um, it's a lot less of an invasive sort of process. Um, and so maybe that's maybe that's an alternative. Um, maybe uh, something like Dominic Lecrapper talks about empathic unsettlement. So this idea of being disturbed by the content or the the object of empathy, but uh, remaining in yourself, knowing that you are still removed from it. Um, so there are various ways in which I guess we can conceptualize alternatives. Uh, to empathy um, but there is I think a responsibility in terms of response yeah I that's I think I have nothing to add I think I agree <laughs> um, <laughs> well I have one final question um, and you kind of gesture towards it at the end of the text and you've you've talked you've given a little hint maybe at the beginning but um, what are you thinking about now where are you going in your in your research or have you taken a new route are you on a different road are you are you moving on from empathy what's what's on your mind um so i once went to a leonard cohen concert um and (laughs) this sounds like it has nothing to do with it but i'll connect it um so and at the at the end of it he came he left and then he came back and he left and came back for so many encores um and then he said like at the end of i think one of the last ones he said um i tried to leave you but i couldn't and that's kind of how i feel about empathy like i try i thought i could leave it maybe potentially but i almost couldn't like i felt there were so many other ways in which i could explore it so uh what i'm working on now is still empathy um and it is still poetry, but it's um, I'm focusing in on the Holocaust, and I actually have like the honor to work on the show. So the Shoah Foundation has uh, it was actually a Steven Spielberg project to record uh, testimonies from Holocaust survivors, and now it's expanded to uh, survivors um, and other kinds of witnesses, not just survivors, but other witnesses of um, multiple different genocides. 
so uh, the visual history archives, I'm working with it, um, and I'm listening to uh, oral Holocaust testimonies, and particularly uh, survivors who read their own poems during the testimonies. Um, and so, like, listening to poetry is a different experience than reading poetry. Um, and listening to poetry in the context of a testimony um, can be, like, uh, quite interesting in terms of uh, the implications for empathy, uh, which is what I'm looking at. And also in this project, I am thinking um, more about my own empathy as what we discussed as a witness um, and my own responsibility as a witness um, to not overstep, but to find kind of where, where to, oh, I guess, where to place myself in that research. So that's kind of the work that I'm doing now. Um, so it is the work that I proposed in that final conclusion, um, and I feel very fortunate to um, be doing it. Well, that sounds like a really interesting project. Um, and I hope that when it comes out and in whatever form it is, maybe we can we can have you back and talk more about empathy um, and dis- and get to even more topics that we couldn't get to today. Thank you. Um, that would be wonderful. So once again, um, we were talking with Anna Vaprinska, whose book Empathy in Contemporary Poetry After Crisis is out through Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you, Anna, for for chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Britt, and thank you for your uh, really fascinating, interesting, and uh, incisive questions. And thank you for listening to the New Books Network, New New Books and Literary Studies channel. Once again, I'm your host, Britt Edelin. Until next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.